1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Can subaltern speak? Now an iconic question from a prominent post-colonial study scholar, Gayatri Spivak. The question interrogates the inbuilt assumption about the locatable agency in an individual. Postcolonial studies have grappled with the question of legibility and limitations of archives. In her pathbreaking work, Empire of Touch, Kulomi Saha disrupts the binaries of nation and individual, as well as agency and silence by arguing that women's labor is a political one that articulates their relational aspirations through tactile. In this contemporary moment with neoliberalism's co-optation of ethno-nationalism and an increasing disciplinary turn towards ethnicity as culture, Professor Saha emphasizes the urgency of post-colonialism to prioritize political projects and literary critiques and understand the connections between global capital and intimate material life of women's labor. I am pleased to welcome Professor Palami Saha today at the New Books Network in Gender Studies to talk about her new work on Empire of Touch, Women's Political Labor and the Fabrication of East Bengal. Palomi, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be
2: here. Yeah, um, I'm also really excited to have you here and talk about your amazing book as well. Um, First, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. I'm uh, an associate professor of English at UC Berkeley, where I'm also affiliated faculty in the programs for critical theory and the Department of Women and Gender Studies. And my work broadly uh, spans post-colonial studies, ethnic American literature, critical theory, and uh, queer and gender studies. Uh, So it encapsulates a broad range of fields, but at its heart is really an interrogation of the the broadest understanding of empire, how empire shapes our understanding not just of power and politics, but all forms of relationality in the world.
2: Mm, yeah exactly and I thought that that was really well reflected in the book and we will talk about this at length that you know during the interview but yeah your book is really about how you know the Empire and the idea of nation you know really shape you know more of the intimate sites uh, you know that is labor and social relations uh, or you know the studies that you conduct and on um, that, Brings me to um the question of archives as well. So following Gayatri Spivak's call to interrogate the power of representation, um, in your introduction you emphasize the need for a new framework that really disrupts the binary of agency and silence, and ask an empirical question about where political women's political labor can be located. Um, can you tell us more about your journey with the archives? Absolutely. You know, it is always
0: fascinating to me how intently we as humanists in particular fetishize the archive, that despite the fact that we've inherited, say, 40 years of critiques about uh, the availability of the archive to offer visions of political uh, agency or the very construction of the archive itself, everyone from the Subaltern Studies Collective to Jacques Derrida, we nonetheless think of the archive and go to the archive, and I'm gonna keep using the phrase, the archive here, um, with some faith that it will open itself to us and hidden and always hidden, within it will be some profusion of material available to our analysis. This is the grand fantasy. And in some ways, my book started with a promise of that fantasy because my book started in the colonial archive um, in an early encounter with the British Library, where in the beautiful, pristine, climate-controlled Asia-Africa uh, reading room, I discovered this remarkable collection of documents about women's revolutionary work during the early nationalist period in India. And this abundance of material, its clear categorization, the ways in which it had clearly been also taken from local archives. Um, some of the material still had the stamp of the government archives of India on it. Um, but it seemed the, as though the archive, could tell me everything I wanted to know about the question of women's political labor. I say this even though I am well versed in all of those earlier critiques. And what I found actually as I wrote this book is that fantasy of the abundance of the archive was not just about my own desire to understand women's political labor, but also about how we construct archives as hermeneutic objects. And so the whole book is in some ways grappling with what archives are, what they do, their institutional reality, but also how in some ways to do a new kind of critical work, we have to approach the archives differently. And so, you know, there's a moment in latter chapters of the book and in the latter research of the book where I'm literally sitting at government archives now, no longer in Britain, but in post-colonial Bangladesh. And I'm being told I don't have access to material. And what I get instead becomes a new archive, non governmental, non formalized, and actually record keeping. So I have to re understand my method. I have to re understand my modes of narration. I also have to re understand the archive as a thing that contains objects I can read. So it's a book that's really trying to grapple with how we look for and understand traces of women's political agency when our formal archives either fail or tell us incomplete stories? Mm, Right.
2: Yeah. There are just so much in there that I really want to, like, talk more deeply about it. But um, for now, I think, especially what you said about, um, you know, uh, how it's not about so I guess a lot of post-colonial studies on um, scholars have you know also talked about the uh, you know the problem of seeing something as you know not there like the absence and you know as you're saying um, you know they have pointed out the need to uh, in a way or. Uh, Critically interrogate the politics of visibility, and I really like that you know how in your uh, in your work you really grapple with that, and you know talk about modes of reading, and that actually brings me uh to part two uh, of your um, book, and how you talk about uh, you know, fetishistic reading, which I thought was a uh, really interesting uh, and very like, uh, important theoretical contribution that you're making through your work um, as you know, a reparative mode uh, to disrupt the idea of sovereign. Um, can you tell the audience more about you know, what you mean by uh, fetishistic reading and how to see it uh, as a reparative mode?
0: Absolutely. So, in some ways, it might help to understand the structure of the book a little bit. This is a book that is not um, chronological in its organization. The first chapter is a kind of theoretical gambit, and we can talk about that chapter if you'd like. And then the second part of the book is divided into two halves. The first section is a kind of post colonial canon section. Um, That is, it's a, a section where I grapple with major figures of World historical import uh, figures like Rabindranath Tagore, M.K. Gandhi, Sigmund Freud, and I grapple with the major questions that seemed to present themselves during anti-colonial nationalism from the turn of the ni- uh, turn of the 20th century to 1947 uh, and the partition of India. And so, in part two, I begin in some ways with. Rabindranath Tagore's critique of nationalism and this phrase that really struck me in his essay, Nationalism, which was in fact a, a set of lectures that he delivered across America during 1916. So, the, you know, there's a kind of world historical moment of critiquing nationalism inflected by World War I there. Uh, but he says that nationalism makes a fetish. Of the nation. And I was very struck by the word fetish there because I inherit an understanding of the fetish through Freud and Marx, both of whom take it to be an object that elides or um, does away with a true object of desire, right? That it's a compensatory mechanism, it is um, paraphilic. And what I found striking in Gore's use is that he didn't seem to be citing Freud or Marx, but he was actually citing an earlier anthropological understanding of the fetish, which goes back to how uh, Europeans talked about West Africans as having fetish objects that were objects, not that were false, but that seemed to have a value that did not translate across cultures, right? So where Europeans believe that West Africans, instead of valuing gold, had made of these apparently mundane, um, sometimes mud, sometimes manufactured objects, fetishes, they still had to engage in transactional encounters with these fetish objects. So they thought they were winning. They thought they had, you know, traded uh, gold for a thing of no, or they had gotten gold for a thing of no value. But in fact they were being called into thinking about the power of mundane objects. And I think that uh, for Freud, uh, for, sorry, for Tagore, the fetish is a way to think about how the nation is transformed. All the value that he sees in a nation, the feeling, the communitarianism, uh, the natural beauty, all of that is actually displaced for what he thinks of as a kind of machine, that the fetish of the nation is a machine, and we, national actors, become insensate. We stop thinking and feeling. And so for... Tagore, the fetish of nationalism, works on us in bad ways, right? So here he shares a kind of suspicion of the fetish with Freud and Marx. But I began to think about how this is actually a very masculinist conception of the self and its uh, sovereignty. The fantasy that we are ever fully in control, that we are ever not worked on by objects, mundane and spectacular, is clearly a lie. And I think that this is where feminist critique has a lot to tell us about how intensely we are co-constituted by the world. And so that chapter tries to think through a politics of non-sovereignty through a new vision of the nation. What would it mean for us to want to be enthralled by the fetish of the nation, to actually recognize a giving up of the self? to this object that is not about the loss of what we should truly value, that is the sovereign individual, but in fact, a recognition of another truth between people, right, the making of a true nation. And this is where um, I use the term dish, which is the word in Bangla that connotes both home, country, nation, but also locality.
2: Yeah. Um that was just really beautifully said and uh- I thought that this was especially insightful Um, in terms of how you are really uh, disrupting a very masculine, you know, like conception of self and uh, in a way redefining and like challenging the meaning of sovereignty and like the place that uh, it has in our society today. It's just so deeply embedded and it influences the way that, you know, we think about nation, self and our relations, you know, with the world, uh, which I thought was just really really insightful and how you're bring a dash in here or uh, to really emphasize how looking at you know women's uh, labor and you know really uh you know thinking that through the feminist critiques or uh, bringing you know the importance of locality and how are uh, you women's political labor in a way uh really trouble you know this idea the promise of you know like reproductive nationalism and the purity of the idea of uh, the nation um so this actually brings me, um, to the earlier point that you made about, you know, how to read women's, um, political labor. And, uh, you know, that makes me want to go back to, you know, the first chapter, which I absolutely loved, um, uh, where, you know, you talk about, uh, the revolutionary, uh, pretty out, but uh, whatever, um, and Asati uh, as a site of refusal, uh, which I, you know, having, you know, really loving Black feminist work of refusal, um, I, like I really loved how you brought it all together. Um, So I wanted to ask, ma'am, um, can you tell us more about, you know, this like gendered politics of refusal and uh, unspeaking as you uh, show us in the first chapter?
0: Absolutely. So my first chapter, as you said, is, about Prithilata Wadadar, who is a 20-year-old school teacher, a young woman who joins a revolutionary group in Chittagong, which is now a part of Bangladesh, um, in the 1930s. And she is one of the only recorded women in Bengal to die in in relation to some sort of anti-colonial terrorism. And I'm using the word in relation here carefully because... Uh, What happens is her body is found dressed as a man and as a kind of explicitly Muslim man outside of the um, European club in Chittagong, where she had just led a group of men um, to attack the club. They killed several people. They, They managed to flee, apparently unharmed. So it's a kind of mystery when authorities find her body and she has no outward sign of injury. And so there's an autopsy that is done, both a literal autopsy, but a kind of a hermeneutic autopsy that's done that tries to figure out who she is, why she died and what her body is doing there. And what happens as they undress her, right, and they realize that it's not a Muslim man, but actually a young woman, is her whole body is pinned with photographs and manifestos, one of which de- has the phrase, I boldly declare myself a revolutionary. And what she writes about how she's giving her body and her life up to the motherland. Now, what's curious is, Reading the will we'll then go on to have two kind of ghostly lives. For colonial authorities, she becomes evidence in her own death of the masterminding of anti-colonial terrorism by a man named Shuzhou Shen. And they will talk about how she was mesmerized and duped, and she becomes evidence of how masculine political machinations make use of poor, unthinking women. On the other hand, she becomes a kind of folk hero for nationalists, where her um, her face is actually printed onto pamphlets that are firebombed into the police headquarters. She's declared a kind of goddess. This vision repeats what Gayatri Spivak suggests is one way to read Lubaneshwari Padri in Can the Subaltern Speak? And I found that, It was curious that these are her two lives when she leaves her body for us with a clear narrative of her intention and a clear understanding that her intention will be misread. She understands that no matter what she says or does, her body interrupts and also gives rise to ready narratives. And so I tried in that chapter to very much sit with Prithilata Wadadar and this image of this young woman who was so intentional in her writing and self-articulation and to think about all the ways in which she is both read and misread and to rather than say some readings are wrong or right, to understand the profusion of narratives around the there as actually telling us something about the problem of understanding women's political labor, right? If we still stutter in our analysis of this woman who leaves such a remarkable narrative trace, that tells us a, a basic kind of analytic problem. And it's one that um, guides in some ways, my readings of many different objects throughout the book thereafter.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it becomes um, like a theoretical uh, framework. And yeah, as you said, like a guide that uh, yeah really influences the other parts of the chapters as well. And I also wanted to, um, you know, uh, ask you about, you know, the history of Sati as well and how you weave, uh, you know, its history together in discussion of what their body?
0: Absolutely. So here um, I turn to Sati, that is widow immolation, for two reasons. One, because not just Wadidhar, but many other women who were involved in anti-colonial terrorism in this period actually curiously turn to this language of self-immolation. Now, I'll remind you that Wadidhar dies and she doesn't set herself on fire. She dies, actually, it turns out, by taking cyanide. But in her writings, at one point, she talks about self immolation. And it is clear that she is citing not just the image of a widow who joins her dead husband on the pyre, but actually the way in which this produced an entire colonial discourse around the question of women's will and bodies uh, that Gayatri Spivak writes beautifully about, not just in Can the Subaltern Speak, but in other essays. That actually what sati does is, again, it stutters a narrative around women's agency. And so it's clear that these, and this is what's so remarkable, that these young women in the 1930s are explicitly citing an opaque form of self-articulation. They understand that sati, again, is an articulation of will and agency that will always be misread. Right? The question of individual desire cannot actually be read in the act of sati, and so they produce a bodily analogy to their own political work in the 1930s. Yeah,
2: exactly. And um, I love how you know it really you know I think that uh, everything in your book was really beautifully weaved together and how you know this really connects to you know the idea of sovereignty as well and how when you read you know a woman's uh, body and also their political labor, um, it really challenges um the you know very neoliberal idea of sovereignty that is uh, currently very present in this world and. Uh, also the importance of object and fetish and in, um, in a way of suggesting a very different type of agency than, you know, like I, you know, I don't want to use the word agency because it is so loaded, but then here, you know, it is an um, agency that is almost in negation, which, uh, you know, you talk at length about when you talk about the politics of unspeaking and, you um, and I wanted to connect it back to, uh, chapter three, uh, where, um, you talk more about, uh, you know, gendered refusal and how reading Tagore's novel allows you to, you know, also show how, yeah, women's, uh, uh, you know, women's political labor is really, you know, disrupting this promise of reproductive nationalism and shows the, you know, connection between local and global. Um, so I wanted to ask you more about, you know, your analysis of the chapter as well as, you know, how you think it's like really relevant today as uh, under neoliberalism, uh, you know, it's increasingly the world is becoming, you know, increasingly transnational with uh, the intricate connections between local and global, but simultaneously um, those connections uh, are being elided and erased.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, The third chapter actually takes up Rabindranath Tagore's perhaps most famous novel, The Home in the World in Bangla, Ghoribayre. And um, on the one hand, this is a canonical novel uh, that is often read as, on the one hand, a critique of anti-colonial nationalism and an espousal of a kind of cosmopolitan humanism. On the other hand, it's also read as a kind of indictment against women's excessive desires. And so um, I read the novel against the grain, you can say, um, because I'm interested in how there's been, to my mind, a fundamental misreading of the object of desire at stake in the novel. So in the novel, you have this young housewife, Bimola, who's never left um, the inner apartments of like the kind of women's space of this household. She is the wife of a educated, kind, clearly clearly kind of ineffectual uh, landlord, Nikhil. And when his dearest friend, Sandeep, who is a kind of fiery nationalist leader, comes to stay with them, she's entranced by him. Now, Common readings of the novel hold that she falls in love with him. And she, you know, that there's a there's a whole narrative of her stealing um, to fund, you know, his his projects and the sense that he's manipulating her. And it, there's there's clearly erotics here, but I actually think that her real object of desire is never quite Sandeep, and it's definitely never quite her husband. It's actually the idea of the motherland of Bengal who she sees as a woman like herself. This young woman who's never left a house, when she travels, she travels within a palanquin, right? So she's fully enclosed all the time, actually sees herself in a kind of radical relationality with the motherland. And it's not a metaphor for her, right? Where all of these men think about... Motherlands as metaphoric devices to help people feel something about an abstract idea that is the nation. For Bimala, she feels deeply in her body a relationship to a real object, the motherland, Um, and it is for this real object, a feminine object like her, that she'll do anything. And I think it it forces us to rethink nationalism how we understand national feeling if we give up abstraction and i mean it's hard in this moment to not see how intensely that's getting played out in the world i you know i've been thinking a lot for example about what's happening in ukraine and how somewhere people are surprised at the force of feeling being expressed by Ukrainians. Um, I think, as you said, we are in this moment where as the world has become more transnational, we seem to think that the power of the nation has given way and is less forceful on us, but it's clearly not the case. And maybe it's not the nation, right? Maybe the word here isn't nation, but let's return to an older term. Maybe it's about patriotism. That there is a kind of intimate object, we can call it country or dish or nation, but it evokes in us such a powerful feeling that is in fact affect in its truest sense, right? Not just a feeling, but a feeling that makes things in the world. And my book is very invested in the making of things in the world, whether it be the making of political action or the making of textiles. It is clear that lived feeling, felt embodied affect, produces in the world things that we can and must read as political
2: Mm, yeah yeah exactly and this um you raised some really important points, and um, I think this also, you know, brings us to the core, you know, like some of the core arguments of your book, you know, which is about, you know, the importance of, you know, the material labor and, uh, you know, the, uh, the material object um, in terms of carrying, as you said, really eloquently the uh, lived feelings um, as well as embodied affect uh, that we can actually read uh, through um the object. And I actually wanted to ask you because I was really happy by, you know, I was actually really happy to read your work because um, sometimes when I see, you know, the rising studies on object, I am uh, you know like sometimes disturbed by the lack of discussion on labor and you know maybe it's because like my uh, scholarship had uh been you know really focused on labor that this had been so glaring to me but I just really love the fact that you know when you are talking about uh, you know women's political labor and uh, you know um, uh, the actual object that you know they are producing you're actually thinking about the labor behind it and the feelings and the time and the articulations of their desire so I wanted to ask you you know like I guess for you you know what do you think like inspire you to uh, work on this and like look into it more deeply?
1: That's shipstation.com with the code P-O-D.
0: Well, in some ways, my turn to the material and to actual text style, that is material in that regard, um, comes out of the failure of the archive. So all of those um, months where I was trying to get access to archival sites, I found myself enthralled in a different direction. So um, Bengal and East Bengal is famous for being the site of the production of several kinds of cotton fabrics um, in the early colonial era and before that in the Mughal era, you have the production and this hypervalorization of muslin and particularly a local vision of muslin, which was seen as the best in the world from Dhaka called Takai muslin. And this is a kind of it's an utterly ethereal fabric that doesn't exist anymore. It's no longer made. And there's lots of reasons it's not no longer made that are deeply tied to environment and um, and and all sorts of things. But um I found myself enthralled by the idea of this fabric that was so durable that um you would have it for centuries but it was also so fine that they said that you could take nine yards of it and fold it into a matchbox. Um, so muslin of this fineness was actually sent to Queen Victoria to be a part of her trousseau, and this was one of the most valued um, colonial objects. Then thereafter, you have the rise, in some ways, in opposition to muslin, of khadi, This is the form of hand loom cotton popularized by Gandhi as part of his Satyagraha project, um, which again, actively saw itself as the opposite of the artisanal muslin. Um, and Bengal is really essential to Gandhi's non-cooperation movement for many reasons, not least of which as a site of cotton manufacture, And now in its current day, um, Bangladesh is known for two kinds of fabric. On the one hand, mundane knit garments, which are called ready-made garments that you might know from H&M or Gap, sort of cheap cotton knit. Um, which we devalue and we have a kind of embarrassed relationship to. And then fair trade cotton um, that circulates through places like 10,000 villages. So um, I became really interested in the textile life of East Bengal. And I found myself trying to understand What textiles held. That is, that actually textiles are remarkable in that they're designed to be worn, but cotton in particular isn't just worn, it then wears the wearer. So all the signs of labor and manufacture are actually embedded into the fiber of cotton. And this is somewhere to go back to the question of fetishistic reading, this is somewhere an unspoken genius of Gandhi's project of uh, satyagraha. But he misunderstood. Here's what I'm going to suggest. So Gandhi believed that hand loom kadhi would be a common activity that produced a common cloth to wear on a common national body. Everyone should be weaving and wearing only this hand-woven cotton. And he believed the process of both wearing and making that cotton was purifying, right? It is true that there's something magical that happens in the making and wearing of cotton, but it's not purifying in the least. It's actually about accumulation to touch cotton in the picking, well, the sewing, actually, the picking, the um, spinning, and then the weaving, and then the wearing and washing of cotton. Each one of these steps is actually about how, by sitting on the body, cotton actually accumulates into its fiber the particulate matter of the person who wears it. So, Fabric in this way does become a kind of nation-making object, but not through purity, but actually through a kind of radical co-constitution between not just one body and what it wears, but many bodies, right? All the labor that goes into making, washing, and wearing fabric actually draws together
2: a political body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was just really uh, beautifully articulated. And um, as I was reading your book, I was thinking a lot about, um, you know, East Asia and then, um, you know, my own research and how, you know, often uh, East Asian women, um, I mean, garment factories uh, were also, you know, some of the primary, you know, methods for development in South Korea during uh, Um, its industrialization, and um, even though I don't think that it acquired quite an international theme as like Muslim or uh, Kadi, I was thinking a lot about how it becomes both, uh, you know, like a site of um, capital uh, and uh, labor accumulation, uh, and how uh, on the one hand, you know, the seeming violence of the capital accumulation uh, also, you know, intersect with uh, um, this very tangible and like uh, a yeah, material life of labor that at the same time leads and connects people together um, so yeah I thought it was a really beautiful um, you know beautiful in a way hermeneutic or the framework that you said for your book that is actually quite relevant uh, when um, you know I was thinking about my own research as well um, but um this actually really nicely ties into you know the last part of your um book um and uh, especially you know the uh, last chapter you know chapter 5 uh where you be, uh, talk about you know how women's labor became a site of development rhetoric and you know how that also connects to you know the colonial you know uh rhetoric of uh, development as well and um I wanted to ask you about yeah this chapter and uh, you know how you know the uh, both the past and the present uh, you know weave together through this um labor that uh, you describe as well as uh, you know how you discuss or uh, you know thinking otherwise about freedom in this particular chapter
0: thank you for that um so the second half of the book leaves the canonical realm of post-colonial studies. And it enters into uh, the era of post-colonial Bangladesh, which is a unique case, I think, in post-colonial studies, because it is mostly thought of as a kind of social science laboratory. So since it's in 1971, Bangladesh has um, been seen as this kind of development experiment. It's received 50 billion dollars in aid from places like USAID and Danita. Um, and its rise through development indices is kind of credited to two things. On the one hand, um, the kind of monitoring of things like maternal uh, health and uh, mortality rates, women's literacy, all of these markers that depend on like the women's body, and also on how intensely garments work, um has sort of catapulted it towards, I think, soon to be a middle income country. Uh, and so the book, in some ways, tries to think one about the continuity between this new vision of East Bengal and the earlier version of East Bengal, and to think about what it is about women's labor that comes to be so narrativized and quantified in new ways. Um, and so my fourth chapter, is about um, women who were raped during the war um, and how uh, how their experiences have been narrated and memorialized and not. Um, and my final chapter sort of returns to a long history of textiles to think about the, the connection between Qadi and the rise of the Singer sewing machine as the first uh, real micro f- credit on the subcontinent um, to Garment's work. And my argument there is actually quite simple. It is that contemporary garments work depends on the fundamental devaluing of the object. That is, garments work is profitable because t-shirts are cheap. Why are t-shirts cheap? Because the labor is cheap. Why is the labor cheap? It is cheap in some ways because of the word ready made. It suggests no human actually makes that object. So you don't have to think about compensating a human for the manufacture of that object. Um, And, you know, I spent six months in and out of garments factories learning about how. These garments are produced, learning to use machines. And I will tell you, as someone who's actually quite physical, and I like to think of myself as strong and able, I cannot tell you how exertive that labor is. There's nothing machinic about it. There are machines involved, of course, but there's nothing machinic about it. It is no less handmade than khadi was. It is a different form of making. And I began to realize that actually there is a kind of radical re-narrativization of objects of labor that has to disappear the making. And it's curious because that's exactly also what happened back in the 18th century with Covey. Kadi then, I mean sorry, not kadi, in the 18th century with muslin. Muslin then, so handmade, right? Because there was there was an industrial manufacture, was seen to be so ethereal and magical that it was impossible to imagine that a human had made it. So you have all these colonial books talking about how muslin must have been made by fairies we have two ends of a spectrum disappearing the body of the laborer producing two very different textiles. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I really um, appreciated yeah, your point about how, you know, there is no, I guess, like there is, you know, no less work in, you know, quote unquote, already made, uh, you know, garments than a kavi that, you know, we have to, in a way, rethink, um, you know, labor and then the processes and how, you know, these objects are being created, um, and as well as how, you know, in the both sides of the spectrum, like for both, like, you know, both, uh, I guess, um, in a way, even like valorizing, um, you know, Muslim, and also uh, really casting out the ready-made work um, in both sense, women's labor is being um, systematically um, erased, like their labor and bodies are being systematically erased, which um, I thought was just really relevant, especially given, uh, you know, the culture that we have right now, where, you know, the clothes are closer just being tossed away. Um, you know, we live in a fast trans society, uh, where, you know, it's seen as like uh, the clothes are seen as like so disposable and that, you know, as, as the term ready-made uh, suggests, um, it does, you know, take away the connections that, you know, you're emphasizing throughout the book that we can actually see when we think about the history um and, you know, think about the clothes, and, uh, you know, that we're uh, wearing. um So I really appreciated those points that you raised in your uh, fifth chapter. I, I wanted to go back to you know the chapter four um, in you know, conjunction with archives um, because I thought it was really interesting how um, you discussed in the beginning that you know you are choosing to move away from the oral history of women who were in the war uh, and rehabilitated unlike many of the scholars. Um, and I wanted to ask you, can you tell us more about, you know, why you made this decision and how that shaped the rest of your chapter?
0: Sure. So my fourth chapter, um, which thinks about, well, I should say it began with my attempt to find the archival records of women who were raped during the war in 1971 and the government compensation that was offered to them. Um, and, and, It's true. There is actually a lot of really interesting, really excellent work on uh, through oral histories and ethnographies with these women because 1971 was so recently that um, really wonderful feminist um, work has come out of that. And I avoided it for two reasons. The first, and we should be very upfront about these things, is disciplinary training. I'm simply not trained to do ethnography. I wish I was, but I've I have a degree in English and as a literary scholar, I don't have the disciplinary training to ethically or rigorously do that work. And the other thing was that I found myself thinking about the power of a name, that this is something I can do as a literary studies scholar. I can think about language and that when, that when these women were, um, were sent to rehabilitation camps and offered compensation, they were given a name. That the Bangladesh government was very insistent on trying to recode the sexual violence they had experienced into war labor. So they gave them the name Birongona, which means heroine or wife of hero, as a way to suggest that having been raped during the war was a kind of warfare, like a kind of war labor. And um, I realized that when you engage in oral histories or you do ethnography looking for or talking to birangonas, you are actually producing a discourse around the name. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't women who were raped during the war. There were. I'm not saying that there aren't women who took the compensation. Absolutely. but actually what I discovered is it seems to me that the word birangana is a kind of empty signifier, that it is a a political envelope that's designed to actually not be populated by real people. Because what does it mean to call yourself by that name or to take that name? there are lots of forms of violence and deprivation that people faced during the war that could or couldn't be encoded in that name. But that name itself stands apart from the experience of the war. And so I found myself wanting very much to think about um, how else we understand the war and its aftermaths around questions of sexual violence. So I stepped away from the archive. I stepped away from oral history. And I first went to rumor and all of the rumors that I was hearing that the archives had actually been destroyed and had been burned. And I, t- I turned to private archives. Um, people would open their homes to me. They would share with me documents. I had this extraordinary moment where a photographer who I reached out to because I had seen a photograph she had taken of a woman in one of the rehabilitation camps. Um, I found her through some, I think, sleuthful Googling. Um, and she you know, said to me, well, I wish I had this material from back then, but you know, I'll talk to you. And I thought that's fine. I'll take it. And two days later, she sent me a massive box that she had discovered in her uh, in her attic of material that she had gathered from the war, material that she thought that she had lost or had been destroyed. And I began to think through again this question of the archive um, and what it suggests to us about the limits of what we can know. And where else we might go when the archive seems to fail? Where do we go when um, what we think to be the repository of both the future and the past, especially of a post-colonial state, is failed or refused or closed or on fire? Um, And so this is the... You know, and I think that this is, this returns in some ways to Prithilata Wadadar and the ways in which actually what you're faced with is a profusion of narrative. You have a narrative and articulation, and that you have to read now outside of the ready given frames, and that gives us new modes of analysis and new narratives, it also um, can be difficult. It can be really terrifying to realize yourself having to work way beyond what you expect to be um, your ambit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I,
2: Found this uh you know chapter to be really relevant as well because um uh, in my uh, research as well um there is a term for domestic servants that is highly stigmatized and um uh, you know scholars also talk about you know the absence of archives there because people don't really want to identify with the term um so when I was reading your chapter and you know about the power of a name you know it just really resonated with me because, you know, that is, you know, some of the problems that the scholars have been um, encountering um, with, you know, how, you know, people identify, you know, that really vary and in a way it is an empty signifier that had a very real tangible impact on their lives, but, you know, can also limit the narratives that we see. Um, and thank you for bringing it, like, really nicely to the first chapter as well, which is, you know, uh, which really sets a nice uh, theoretical framework about uh, how rumors and, like, this profusion of narratives of, like, readings and, like, constant uh, misreadings, Um, in a way, uh, then, uh, like, ask us to ask a bigger question about what these narratives are doing, and um and again about you know the question of you know then how do we read uh in in a way that you know goes beyond the framework really like thinking outside of the box um so uh yeah thank you that was, was really beautiful um and yeah I've taken up a lot of uh, you know your time um and so I wanted to move on to the last um uh, you know question that we uh, traditionally ask at the New Books Network which is what is the next, next project you're working on
0: Well I'm excited to share a little bit of it which is that I am currently working on a book called Fascination um, which is a history of America's enthrallment by the idea of Indian spirituality and how often and why these groups and figures who cite Indian or Vedic origins get called cults. So it's a book about cults and trying to think through also what we as contemporary readers, listeners, and viewers faced with just a massive profusion of popular cultural material on cults go looking for when we go looking for cults. And um, it's a book very much about wanting to lose yourself. It's a book about um, the radical possibilities of mundane transcendence. Yeah. Um,
2: Wow. That sounds really exciting. And also, you know, ties in you know with your previous uh i guess the book that we are talking about um but already previous book project as well when you know uh, you talked about fetish and you know how that that really reminds us about the power of the mundane um that you know when you bring gender framework into it uh you know especially then sheds power and disrupts the uh, current system of thinking that we have in place about fetish and nation and individual Uh, also that sounds really exciting. And yeah, I wanted to thank you again for being on this show. And we're all really excited to, you know, have you back when you uh, publish your next book. And thank you again for sharing these wonderful insights with us. Oh,
0: it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.